0: Welcome back for another episode of Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and back after a few weeks of absence is our European vacationer, Dan. Dan, welcome.
1: Hey there. How's it going, (sighs) Dwayne? Really good to be back. Really good to have gone. Had a great time. Uh, Fun traveling with the family and stuff. But I am refreshed. I am ready to talk comics. I am missing comics. Better yet, I came home this week and got to actually go back through my boxes, and find some of my old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics from when I was a kid. Some of these classics from my teenage years. Uh-huh. Uh, they're from, the old books are from Mirage Studios. They kickstarted the crazy black-and-white indie comic scene in the mid-'80s. Dwayne was unconvinced about the need for us to go and read Turtle comics, so I'm really interested to find out whether this was a success or whether I've driven us completely off the the road into a ditch
0: here that's entirely untrue i am actually a fairly decent sized fan of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles however i've never read any of their comics just like i most of the mcu characters i had i have a movie an animated series sort of history with these characters and it was very eye-opening to see what they looked like in their original incarnation, which we got a chance to read this week, but I'm getting ahead of ourselves here. We we've got a lot to talk about, and let's just jump into our comic book news here. And I, and I had to bring this story up, Dan, since you're back. Marvel Comics presents the death of Moon Knight this October. Witness the full scope of Jed McKay and Alessandro Capuccio's vision for Moon Knight in. The Last Days of Moon Knight, the epic three-part storyline kicking off in issue 28, will be the culmination of Moon Knight's current era and the beginning of his next chapter. I saw this article, there's more to it, talking about basically the final three issues. We, we've known for a couple months now that Jed McKay was moving on from Moon Knight, is doing The Avengers and doing some other books, but we didn't know when he was officially ending or how long this final run was going to be. Apparently it's a three story arc uh, that starts in October. So we've got him through the end of the year.
1: Yeah. As there's so many, there's so many things about this that uh, I mean, look McKay has been awesome. Absolutely yeah. spectacular. This has been, it. it's very rare to be able to have a character that you, you really enjoy just sort of taken care of as well as we have been lately. However, I hate the death of storylines so much because you know, he's going to die. And then it's the, the next chapter. There's no next chapter. He's dead. Plus. Yeah. He, plus he's already dead. We've already seen uh-huh. the death of the moon Knight. That was like, you know, back in moon Knight number one, 40 years ago. So we'll see how it goes. I I love McKay's stories, so I'm confident that we're going to have fun with this. But I would rather he just kept reading them instead. And and mostly right now, I'm I'm concerned because there are a lot of characters that I like. The status quo right now is something that I'm very comfortable with. They're going to break it, and I'm going to be angry. Yeah. And uh, and if Tigra gets hurt, I'm. I'm burning all my Moon Knight comics, just so you know. There we go. That's, that's, that's where we're at.
0: We talked about this when we were reading Moon Knight, and I was talking about how when I found a artist and a writer combination that I really liked, I, I always felt like those runs were not very long. But we get we're gonna potentially get 30 issues basically with Jen McKay and mostly Alessandra Cappuccio for most of these. And I, that's as long as I think most any really good run. In fact, it's longer than a lot of the really good runs, save for Doug Mensch and Bill Uh This is going to be one of the long runs. And, you know, they talk about it basically kickstarting this character, uh, this run of Moon Knight, and that it's one of the more popular characters right now. So it's a little surprising that he's, you know, moving on. But of course, you know, creative decisions and move wanting to move on and try different things. I'm sure is is why is why this is happening.
1: Yep. We'll see how it goes, but uh, you know, and the fact that even, even when it hasn't been Cappuccio, it's been Sabatini who has been a very complimentary, uh, their styles are are so different and yet so complimentary. I don't know exactly how they manage that alchemy, but it's worked really well. So
0: Switching over to Marvel Unlimited, we do have some new books in Marvel Unlimited. There's two number ones, Alien Number One and Darth Vader, Black, White, and Red. And you and you have a note here about this Darth Vader book. Did you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, just that it's interesting that now in the Star Wars universe, they're taking the same black, white, and red sort of of conceit that we've got the Moon Knight book, and there's been a couple others that have been like this where they do them as essentially a a black and white book where the only color in the comic book is red and so they right. use that for blood or they use that for accent or they use that for whatever it's a very interesting way to tell a story uh with vader i would assume it's mostly going to be lightsabers and blood i'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here <laughs> sure that that's what the red's going to be used for but we will see so these these were interesting this kind of the little anthology stories i think it'll probably if you're a star wars fan it might be something good to take a look at
0: definitely other characters with new books this week uh include thing dr strange venom wasp photon deadpool daredevil mary jane and black cat hulk and thor so lots of interesting characters there with new books this week so there's probably something interesting in marvel unlimited for you dan do you have a recommendation for us now
1: yeah, so we're going back into our childhoods today, or at least my childhood, uh, and looking at uh, looking at the turtles. There's actually a book that just came out last week. I had it on my on my pre order list, in fact, at the store. So you can get this at your local comic store. You can also get it through bookstores or wherever you buy graphic novels or books. It's called The He-Man Effect: How American Toymakers Sold You Your Childhood, and it's by a guy. Name uh, brian box brown who has done a number of sort of almost like more uh sort of non-fiction comic books you'd call them and it's really kind of interesting because he's doing cultural history and he's doing it in a way that's really accessible so but this talks about a lot of this corporate manipulation and how sort of the toy companies fed these various crazes and kind of created these IP empires that now are just continuing to be juggernauts. So sure. if you're interested in thinking about the turtles and stuff like that, you might want to check out He Man Effect. It's uh kind of a nice book that's complimentary to the sort of thing we'll be talking about this week. Definitely sounds like
0: it. And there'll be a link for it in the show notes. And with that, let's jump in and let's talk about the stack this week. It's been a few weeks since we've read some comics but we definitely have some comics that we read this week. Dan, tell us
1: what we read and why you picked these books. What I wanted to do was not only have you read the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles books to get you ready for the movie, and, and we're going back to the very first Turtles books, uh, Teenage Mutant Turtles number one through seven, but also to give you sort of some context both backwards and forwards on these guys. So, first book we read is Ronin number 1. Ronin is a book by Frank Miller that had a substantial influence, it seems, on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and on Eastman and Laird. So, just to give you kind of an idea of why they might have been doing this sort of gritty book about, uh, you know, about uh, ninjas... Ronan's one of the reasons that came about. Now, Frank Miller also was doing a lot of stuff in Daredevil at that time. And there's a lot of very, very significant uh, connections there. But I didn't want to necessarily give you any of those books that are featured, the, the big Daredevil parts with, like, the hand and stuff like that. Because if we sometime read Daredevil, Daredevil, it would be like literally dropping a spoiler into the middle of things for you for later. I just didn't want to do that. So You've heard if anybody's out there saying... If there's anybody out there saying, why didn't you have him read Daredevil? That's the reason, is I I don't want to do that. So Ronan's filling in for that as the the ninja book for Frank Miller. Uh, Then we're going to read Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one through seven. We're doing these seven books because they are the books that are featured in the first sort of anthology collection. It's one through seven, and then actually the Raphael one-shot, which we're skipping just for space. Um, And the last one. And those are, of course, important because that's the original one. vision of the turtles in all their crazy, violent uh, sort of glory. And then the last book is Adolescent Radioactive Black Belt Hamsters, number one from 1986. This You're is a crazy Glenn.
0: book. This is a crazy, crazy book. But <laughs> let me not get ahead of us on this. Uh To your point about this being sort of the launching pad of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, this set of books that we read this week, I saw a note on Wikipedia talking about the Turtles franchise, and it is five TV series, six feature films, uh, the seventh one coming out this week, uh, their their second animated film, talking about numerous video games, all the wide range of toys and other merchandise and stuff so regarding the he-man effect as well we we suddenly got just this this ip just went from a black and white comic book in the mid-80s to just this complete cultural phenomenon i don't know of anybody that didn't know who the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were by the mid-90s it was
1: just everywhere yep absolutely so so i think this is going to be fun it's going to be weird but shall we proceed
0: yes let's let's proceed but we we normally when we do a comic book issue we talk about we have a creator profile and i see that you're highlighting the the guys behind the teenage mutant ninja turtles
1: eastman and laird don't really have much choice here because these first couple books there is nobody else right It's basically just the two of them. They write it, they draw it, they ink it, they letter it. There is no coloring, but when there is color on the actual covers, they do that. Uh, These guys did it all. What's interesting is that they actually met in the early 80s. They both were art school guys. And both of them had sort of gotten out of school and really had not necessarily found their footing. Uh, Eastman was eight years younger than Laird. And he was sort of just um, working odd jobs and things like that. Laird actually did have a job doing drawings for the local paper and things like that, but really wasn't making a whole lot. Both of them were what I guess we'd kindly call underemployed and were hoping to somehow or another be able to fulfill their dream of making comic books. They met, got along, Eastman actually moved in, with Laird and his wife and they set up a, a shop there they set up a couple of drawing stables and just started making comics together and interestingly uh the idea is one night they were just sitting around and Eastman kind of doodled this this turtle that was on four or two legs with a with a sword and Laird kind of laughed at it and he drew his own and there came the idea suddenly they had four of them they got ready to make a book, they created it, they got a something like a $1,000 loan from Eastman's uncle, which allowed them to self-publish Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one. They printed a little over 3,000 copies, figured they would have them in their garage for years while they were trying to get rid of them one or two at a time at little conventions. Instead, the entire run sold out in a couple weeks, and they started having to do reprints, they got to do additional issues. It was a crazy story because these were not the sort of guys you would figure this would happen to. But what is interesting, I think, to a little bit is that Laird had just a little bit of marketing knowledge from the fact that he'd worked at a paper. And so he knew how to send out press releases and things like that. And they generated just enough interest that it hit. Once they did that, one of the interesting things that I think is sometimes not played up enough there's actually a um a recent tv show called the toys that made us that's on netflix that talks about this um was that they were actually approached by a guy named mark friedman who was also kind of underemployed but wanted to be an agent or marketer and he convinced him to let him see what he could do with the with the property so he took it off tried to tell it get it to toy studios whatever he actually managed to get them into a toy company the toys became huge in order to try and get the toys made the toy company actually sponsored the creation of an animated series that became big and suddenly you've got spin-offs toy deals bigger studio and staff for them their licensing's huge um and there it all swelled well beyond the comic world right you know, both of these guys become almost immediate millionaires. One note to aspiring comics creators, almost none of that money comes from selling comic books. Right? <laughs> they made sure. they made $2,000 off of issue number one, and they were thinking they were flying high. Right? So, almost all of that money is coming from toy sales and stuff like that. This was all back in like 1984, 1985, 1986. I think the TV show comes out in 86, 87, something like that. It all then ended in 1993. The two of them got rich quick. Uh, they got famous. They made a few comic books. They were trying to maintain this whole empire of turtles. And then suddenly they split up. Uh, Eastman and Laird end up almost being kind of like that Axel Slash of the comic book world where these guys who become huge they're doing it together suddenly they just split up and neither of them really is hardly ever heard from again right Now, that's not to say they're not doing stuff eastman went out to california laird stayed uh, back with the company and did some stuff and eventually they actually did come back together kind of that reunion tour thing where just recently they worked on a new book called The Last Ronin in in 2019. Um, And they've now been actually doing things like appearing on YouTube videos and things like that together in the last couple of years. After probably 20 years of never really fighting and always saying nice things about each other, they finally have just started to actually come back in the same room and, and, and be friends again. So Eastman, he actually had founded Tundra which did some nice comics, big numbers from hell, that sort of stuff, but lost a bunch of money. He also bought heavy metal, which he's been for like 30 years. What's weird about him is as the young one, he sort of went Hollywood, moved to California in the nineties. He married penthouse pet to the month, Julie strain. There are rumors that one of his first big purchases after they started making money was a tank, which he used to try and win paintball wars. Um, he acted in a few movies now is divorced and has come back to working more with the turtles uh, and has kind of returned to comic books. Laird, a little bit older, a little bit more conservative on things in terms of that. He was already 30 and struggling when they published the the, um, turtles. So he actually stayed with them for a long time and just sold the, the turtles for like 60 million or something like that in 2009. But He stayed with Mirage for a long time, managed a lot of the adaptations and that sort of stuff. And he's really more of a classic comics lifer. Used his success, among other things, to help a new generation of comic readers through efforts such as what he called the Creators' Bill of Rights, which he made with a few other creators. And then also the Zyrick Foundation. That provides small grants to upcoming comic creators to help them self-publish. What's cool about this is it's actually Laird's effort to sort of pay forward That $1,000 loan that he and Eastman received that allowed them to get started back in 83. He's like, there are times when you're trying to get something done like a comic book where a very small amount of money can make a really big difference. And that's what Zirik tries to do. So That's really cool. Yeah, they are both really cool guys. Really good guys. People you can cheer for. And lately, as they've started coming together and doing things again, it's really been fun to see.
0: All right, let's dive in and talk about the stack. And the first book isn't an Eastman and Laird Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's actually Ronan and a pretty big named writer artist by the name of Frank Miller that uh, that put this book out. And I've never seen this before. I saw it. Yep. And I'm like, wow, this is. I think this might be the first Frank Miller comic book I've ever read.
1: Really, that would make sense. I suppose. I don't know that we've... We have not... I don't think we've done any Frank Miller to this point. Nope, I wouldn't think so. I, from the stuff I can remember, we would not have. Interesting. Well, welcome to Frank Miller. So... There we go. Yes. uh, This is, in fact, Miller kind of unchained and unmanaged. Because this is him at the height of his sort of, or, or near the height of his creative powers... Back in the 80s, when he was coming off Daredevil, DC basically gave him a come-to-work-for-us-and-you-can-do-anything-you-want come to kind of contract. And Ronan's what he wanted to do. And so it is written and drawn and mostly edited by Frank Miller. So it is just whatever he wanted to put on the paper. Which, spoiler alert, is sometimes a little bit batshit. So, hence... <laughs> This is not always the easiest story to understand, but there you go. You want to hear about it?
0: Yes, tell. Give us a quick recap
1: of Ronin Number One. All right. In Ronin Number One, a young samurai is determined to protect his lord Izaki, who is the possessor of a cursed sword that he stole from the demon Agat. Agat kills Izaki after infiltrating his palace disguised as a courtesan and the samurai dedicates his life to keeping the sword away from Agat and eventually using it to kill the demon who murdered his master. The story then jumps to a post-apocalyptic New York, where Virgo, the sentient computer, leads a cybernetics program that's creating a weaponized human named Billy. Back in feudal Japan, the young samurai, now a masterless ronin, saves a young woman and tells her of his quest to destroy the demon, a process that requires the sword to first drink the blood of an innocent. He then faces off against a man-sized rat warrior, killing it and proceeding to the lair of god. He then stabs himself and the demon with his sword all at once, trapping both of them inside it. The two of them are returned to Earth in the future, though, due to the sword being found and tampered with. They both escape into the city and prepare to continue their battle.
0: So that's so. what that, So that's what happened.
1: Yep so basically it's a story told in two eras you've got the you've got the young samurai back in feudal Japan who fails to defend his master and then starts his quest and eventually he manages to kill or at least trap the demon but then in the future story the sword has been discovered they started applying laser to it or something and that pops the samurai and the um, and the demon back out and they then start taking up their quest against each other in this futuristic world that also has the sentient computer and other people trying to play forces against each other.
0: Yeah. This is, this is a little weird. I have to tell you that I when, when you when you pose this as one of the books for preparing for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I was, outside of, you know, samurais and honor and defending trying trying to protect somebody and mm-hmm. all this the i i what the future part kind of threw me for a loop a little bit as to as to where you know how how this sort of made sense as a as a book to read to get us ready for the teenage Mutant ninja turtles
1: yeah well i mean you know ninja ninjas in space or or the future would make no sense so that would certainly not happen in the turtles books. So I don't know why they're happening in Ronan. Right. So (laughs) right. Exactly. Hold it. Wait, wait till issue four. So, um, yeah, it's, it is weird, but what you're going to find, I think is that from a visual sense, Eastman and Laird very much, especially Eastman who did a lot of the layouts is very heavily influenced by Frank Miller's artistry. So, A lot of his fight scenes a lot of the way he draws his characters and things like that comes very directly almost from frank miller's stylings and at that time that was a way to be successful because miller was wildly popular in the early 80s so there were a lot of people who that was their favorite artist at the time um and then also i think the the sort of gritty and street level but also uh, science fictiony sort of way that he tells the story in Ronan kind of kind of makes its way in as well
0: sure. yeah i have to tell you that the look of this book was as you said gritty and like i don't know if it was just the digital version that we had it looked a little washed out i guess would be the best way i could put it, it that is the way the comic like, looks too yeah mm-hmm. and and I I guess I I don't know a ton about Frank Miller but that has a that's doing. a very interesting looking style and and like everything has this like it it is so unique this look I have to say and and I can see why it's popular and I can see why it would be emulated because it's, it's really something to to see. And it does a really good job of kind of pulling you through the book, I think, in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, it's a really attractive book. And it's. there are times where Frank Miller's art is is sort of grating to me. There's times I like it. There's times I don't. This is definitely a time where the art really serves the story well. And it's it's, like I say, Miller at the top of his form. But so anyway... We look at this, we've got Frank Miller. The other main influence those two guys talk about, by the way, is Jack Kirby. And Jack Kirby and the comics of sort of the early Marvel era, like the 1960s, Fantastic Four, Avengers, that sort of stuff, right? I think what's going to be really interesting is as we go in and look here, a lot of the stories start with an extended fight scene. They start just right in the middle of things. They don't have a lot of time where the turtles are just sitting around talking to each other. You know, this is not Brian Bendis by any means in terms of the way that they're doing <laughs> things. It, it really is just get into the action and go. And that was their interpretation of the way that Jack Kirby did stories. That Kirby never would start a story with a bunch of sitting around for three or four pages. He wanted to make sure that people were immediately engaged by the action on page one or two. They also did a number of two-page spreads, which was another thing that they looked at as emblematic of the way that Kirby's art style would would go, where he would build up something and he'd have this really impressive two-page spread that would sort of, you know, really let the action wash over a person. And so a lot of the things they did were sort of affected by those two artists. And you can really see that. Uh, they're also coming from all sorts of other aspects of the comic world so really Ronan here just stands in for the fact that these were a couple of guys who were comic book fans and as they're making books even though they're trained artists they very much are responding to the styles and stories of mostly Marvel comics of the last 20 years before they before they were working
0: So let's pivot and let's talk about the actual Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 through 7. This is this is the very first appearance. This is the creation of this of this juggernaut. And to, to your point, it jumps right into a fight scene. Basically, the very first issue, the very first thing you see is them fight, getting ready to start fighting.
1: That is right. So we, I think what we're going to do is, instead of trying to talk about all seven, I've got them broken up into number one. Number two, number three and four, and then five through seven. One and okay. two are separate, partly because they were designed that way. So issue one, this first appearance of the of the Turtles, is actually a standalone story that was intended as a one-shot comic. When they made this, they had no idea they'd ever make another Turtles comic, so they just wanted to make a good one and be done with it. It begins with a fight scene between four masked anthropomorphic Turtles And the evil purple dragon gang we're introduced to each turtle individually and we watch as their amazing ninja fighting skills are put to the test against the gang after defeating the purple dragons they then return to their home in the sewers prompting their master a rat named splinter to decide it's time for the young turtles and us to learn their origin story splinter was the pet rat of a master martial artist who was murdered by tang shen the son of an old rival Forced into the streets after the death of his master, Splinter witnessed an accident where dangerous chemicals were spilled on four baby turtles. He took the turtles under his wing, raising them and instructing them in the martial arts. This was made easier due to mutations caused by the chemicals, as both Splinter and the turtles grew in size and intellect, becoming roughly human-sized and learning to stand on two feet. Now, with the four turtles grown and trained, he reveals to them their mission, to find and kill Tang Shen, also known as the Shredder. The Turtles challenge Tengshen to a duel and end up fighting both Shredder and his foot clan in a final battle until eventually, as he say, Shredder has been shredded. The Turtles then walk off into the night victorious. So that's the first issue.
0: Yeah, this was surprising to me. I guess I assumed the Shredder was a big, bad, uh, recurring villain of the Turtles Like in perpetuity, I guess, because, you know, every time I've seen that character as the antagonist to the turtles, you know, he just keeps reappearing and he keeps, you know, going after them, different plans, that sort of thing. I was not suspect. I was not expecting that they were going to take him out in the very first issue.
1: Yes. So you know nobody necessarily stays entirely dead and things like that there are there are some different things that happen but um it's kind of interesting the way that they they just wanted to tell a story where you know they they tell the origin of the characters they give them a mission and then they complete their mission right and so yeah. it's it is um one I mean, of those crazy feels...
0: things go ahead it feels great it it actually feels start to finish this feels like a very well put together comic book right you have all the pieces that you need there's there's story there's action there's backstory there's you know you you get everything you need and in the end you have you know the good guys beating the bad guy and and you know everything is right and you're just like yeah fist pump at the end sort of sort of thing and it and it's great. It was a very satisfying story, I have
1: to say. So you are again, you're younger than me by quite a bit, and you hadn't read these comics. Correct. So probably your first introduction to the Turtles would have been something like one of the animated series or something along those lines.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it would have been.
1: Are you surprised at all by the lack of kawabungas or pizzas?
0: in this in this first book uh yeah that no there's absolutely none of that just like the only thing that really kind of jumped out to me from what I remember of the Teenage Ninja Turtles is Raphael being a hothead we yep. we kind of saw that even in this very first issue but to your point there was a lot of the things that are kind of synonymous with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are not in this very first book.
1: Yep. And it's not a comedy. Like, there's some comedy in it. No. But it's it's really a, a... It's the story that's told... I mean, people call it a parody. And there are parody aspects in it. But really, it's more of an homage, kind of, to Marvel Comics and Frank Miller and Jack Kirby. That, that sort of name drops a few different things and the like. But really tells an original and engaging story and it's more of an adventure. It's got a lot of violence. They actually do a little bit of killing here and there. They're not exactly merciful by any means. This is not a Saturday morning television kind of story right now. Um, I also find it interesting when you saw the origin of the turtles, did it remind you of anything? Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. The origin of the turtles is that as this old man is crossing the street, there's this like sort of like van coming towards him. Some young boy sees that the old man's going to be uh, hit by the truck. He jumps out, knocks him out of the way. Then in that process, he gets hit and is doused in radioactive chemicals. Blinding him, but giving him super senses. That's Daredevil's origin story. Yeah. What they've done essentially is just tacked onto the end of Daredevil's origin story that when that vat of chemicals bounced off Daredevil and blinded him, it then ended up infecting a bunch of turtles who then were mutated and turned into the the four we know. Also, in the second issue, you note that there's the, um, the what's it called, the, text or whatever it's the baxter building backwards that is the one that has crashed down really at a certain point these comic books exist as extensions of the marvel universe they are marvel shadow comics because there is no reason why the turtles couldn't simply be living in the marvel universe because they're experiencing events and places from the marvel universe just differently which is kind of hilarious. So they just sort of dropped their turtles into the Marvel universe, and in fact, directly into Dar- Daredevil's origin story.
0: Did not did not put that together at all.
1: Yep. If you when you remember watching like the uh, the Daredevil TV show, even they show that how young Matt Murdock is is blinded by the truck and everything. It's been a pretty essential part of his of his story all the way through. I just kind of love that because, of course, Frank Miller coming out from that time, Daredevil was the the book he'd made his bones on. And so it's even a more direct connection to just how, how Millerized they were. But the other thing I love about this is even now listening to them talk about the art pages, Eastman and Laird themselves don't know who did what. Cause they literally sat next to each other with the pages and they agree that Eastman did most of the layouts, meaning kind of broke down what was going to happen in each panel, but then they would draw together and each of them would draw like half of the panel. And then when they got bored drawing the things they wanted to draw, they would switch pages and then they would each keep drawing on that page and they would work on them literally as a team so that there is no... Eastman pages, and there is no Laird pages. There are just Eastman and Laird pages, and then Eastman did do the lettering initially, and on the covers, uh, evidently Eastman did the cover for number one, and Laird did the cover for number two, and Eastman did for three. It it when you listen to them talk about their initial collaboration, it is one of the most amiable and effective true collaborations of two artists that i've ever heard of it's really fantastic it's really a fantastic thing but it's weird that yeah even they they're like i think i did some of those robots or whatever but they really don't even know which parts are theirs at this point um so that first issue though you have the foot clan keep in mind that also in daredevil the hand is the ninja clan that is one of daredevil's big enemies so, it's weird uh, things like this. Um, yeah. it just really, really fun. Went through multiple printings. Uh, the first printing is worth a ton, second and third increasingly less. So, if you wanted to get a copy of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one from 1984, not that expensive if you'll take a third printing. If you want the first printing, it's going to cost you a ton these days because there's only 3,000 of them and they are kind of a piece of comic book history. All um, right. Sure. You know, Also, on the art side, they did something weird with the art that I've never seen and I didn't know about until I was researching this. They used something called dual-shade paper. And what it is, actually, is this weird paper that when you put a certain uh, kind of a revealer on it, it's chemicals, it then will, will do the lines almost like checkerboards or different hatchings and stuff like that really expensive paper they used it for all of it but that gave it that interesting black and white texture that turtles has that basically nothing else at that time had and so i'd never understood exactly how they got those textures and that's how they did it there's actually a a different type of paper incredibly expensive ridiculously expensive for the fact they were both broke and making a comic book just for their own fun but it it made some really nice really nice art
0: Should we jump in and talk about the second issue?
1: I think so. So, because the first one succeeded the way it did, they got a chance to make another one. Second issue opens with the turtles roughhousing in their sewer lair, while Splinter watches TV. There's a news story on about a guy named Baxter Stockman and his new rodent-catching robots, which he calls mousers. Stockman's assistant, April O'Neil, gets suspicious about recent bank robberies, and Stockman shows her his army of mousers, all financed by robot-assisted thefts. She's not okay with her boss using her inventions to make money this way, and so Stockman dumps her in the sewers and sends mousers after her to kill her. The Turtles find and save her, and take her back to their home, where Splinter explains everything to her. As they're talking, Stockman comes on the TV with a blackmail plan, threatening to destroy the city's buildings by mouser-gutting their foundations, unless he gets $20 million dollars. The team infiltrates Stockman's lab, and the turtles fight Mozers as April tries to reprogram the system. In the end, it works just at the last moment, and they save the day.
0: Another very comic booky sort of story, but it, it again it just seems like it sort of works. And as you pointed out, we're introduced to a pretty important character, April O'Neil, in in this second issue, and it's. It's fun and it's quick and it. I I actually really liked this as the as the follow up. Do you know, do you know how long of a, a time delay there was between that first issue, and the second issue?
1: I think about four months. Okay. I think About four. Yeah, because it I wasn't believe. like,
0: it wasn't like the very next month or anything like this. They were they didn't they, they went big no. and then had to figure something out.
1: Yeah, it also wasn't as long as it could have been because they they kind of relatively quickly knew that they had a hit on their hands and then immediately returned to the drawing board to see what they could do. So the way that Laird tells it, they got issue number one, they got some reprints, they found out eventually that they were going to make like 2,000 bucks on this and both of them said, we're rich, we can quit our jobs and just make comics. Which is yeah. the saddest thing you can imagine. But that that was it. They're like... Hoo-hoo, I've got two grand. We've done it. I'm we, set. Right? We've done it, yeah. So at that point, they basically just decided they were going to give it a go, and they started, they started in on number two. So I think it was about four months after. And they still weren't particularly fast, so even once they started ramping up, I think it was about three months is probably the fastest that a turtle book ever came out after that. So it took them like two years to make the first one. And then to get the next one out in four months was pretty good. And, and yeah. always, they always were a little slower than some other folks, partly because of the very intensive way that they did things. So, um, But yeah, I, I like this issue a lot. I like the Mousers, the fact that they specifically kind of, you know, hit home where they are a direct threat to Splinter, who's their guy, and they, they want to make sure they're going to defend him. The introduction of April O'Neill, I think, was a a good idea because you've got a human friend of theirs now who can kind of help them out with some things and add a little bit more uh, to the story. Uh, Overall, it just seemed like what they did in these first couple books was just, yeah, come up with a relatively simple but satisfying story and start developing the characters. So you did start to see a little bit more That each of the turtles had their own personality, had their own sort of, you know, I mean, weapons, obviously, but also, you know, one of them's a little bit um, more reserved. One of them is, like you said, a hothead. So each of them's got their own, their own personality. They also, once they started getting things into color, one thing that they did initially was all the bandanas were red and... They didn't have the little letters on their belt in the comics. So Eastman and Laird insist they always knew which turtle was which. I've never been able to tell them apart in the comic books unless no. they're talking to each other, right?
0: No, I, I had a, that was one of the, one of the most difficult parts of reading these books, all, all seven of them here is because they're in black and white and they don't necessarily have their weapons with them and they don't necessarily speak completely different from one another yet like we see in nope. some of the animated shows you couldn't necessarily tell who was talking it's and, very it, difficult and it, to tell. it's it's very difficult because they all look the same too i mean they the like the way the head is drawn the way the body looks everything there is very little visual clue as to who it is you're talking and you have to sort of kind of guess based on what they're saying and the panels kind of before and after it to really know what's going on
1: well, i believe that one of them were is a little stockier and one's a little thinner maybe but i've never been able to dependably see that partly because these guys also are still figuring out their art style so everything isn't as exact from panel to panel as it might be so
0: yeah that was that uh, that was actually one thing i noted about April O'Neil as I was going through these books is it, it seemed like she looked a little different in every panel that she was in and it was like it was a little weird because it's like sometimes she looks like this and then sometimes she looks a little bit different and sometimes the hair and the face and different things like that just looked a little off and, or inconsistent from from appearance to appearance so that, that made it somewhat I mean I still knew I think who it was obviously because She's the only kind of human friend of the turtles, but at the same time, she did look a little different each time we saw her in a panel.
1: So, interestingly, um, you know how these days we've got lots of people who freak out every time that, like, you know, you've got Little Little Mermaid is played by a black girl or something like this. Well, back in the day, we had weird disagreements on April O'Neil that weren't really anybody dug in on what race something's supposed to be but just genuine questions about what race is this person because even um Eastman and Laird don't agree because Laird says he always thought she was a white character um Eastman believed she was multi-ethnic that she was essentially patterned uh, according to him on um Laird's ex- girlfriend who was half asian and when you get into some of the later books like number 11 she looks black in the color comic that's published by the two of them so i think of all the characters in the history of comics if there's one that you can just make any race and hair color you want and nobody can complain about it it's april o'neill because there is no definitive april o'neill she's just whoever laird and eastman happened to draw her as that day uh it is really weird and i think it might be partly that if one of them was drawing her she would look more white and one was drawing her she would look more black or asian uh it's just kind of weird she does not have a consistent look at all through these books uh hairstyle changes they kind of even make a little joke about that and everything but everything about her changes from panel to panel luckily she is the only human pretty much in the book most of the time so it's not that hard to tell it's her but yeah kind of crazy stuff uh, there is actually uh, we can put it in the notes um there's a, a black girl nerds article talking about the the history of april o'neill's inspiration that was actually really interesting that i i tracked down again uh while i was getting ready for this and yeah there's There's all sorts of of interesting things with that. But you're not the only one who is confused about her appearance. It's pretty standard. Yeah. Another thing that you would not know probably, but Baxter Stockman's name. Oh, how we loved that back in the day. Because Baxter paper was the high quality paper that all of the prestige books and the more expensive comics were printed on back in the day. So Baxter Stockman is actually a comic in joke because it's Baxter Baxter Stock.
0: Yeah, believe That's it or funny. not.
1: That's funny. Yeah, it really isn't to like anybody but a very small minority of the <laughs> world's population.
0: <laughs> right.
1: But, but it cracked me up, and it cracked up a lot of other people back in '84 who were, you know, having to having to know that every time something's printed on Baxter paper, we're going to pay fifty cents more for it. Because that's the way it goes. So I was going to ask, what did you think of the ending? Did it seem at all sudden by any chance? It, they, it they did sort of just issue. feel
0: like it was it was going, 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 done.
1: That this is going to be, I think, a, a almost a hallmark of some of these books is that they plow along with their idea. And then they're like, "Oh crap, we gotta we gotta resolve this." And then it just sort of ends. They're like, "Oh, well, we pulled the plug. Looks like we won. Everything's gonna be okay." Yeah, it's fun. You go along for the ride, and then you just accept that, I guess. Okay, so we have
0: these two really good stories, very reasonable stories, I think. If you're if you're thinking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you have Shredder, you have this Baxter Stockman, these Mousers. Books three and four start to go a little bit off the rails. I have to say, because turtles in space. Absolutely, I did, not, did not have that on my bingo card.
1: So yeah, the guys return to home after the defeat of the Mausers and they find the place trashed with Splinter gone. They realize the sewers are no longer safe. Decide to call April for help. She agrees them, let them crash at her apartment. But when she comes to get them in her van, a case of mistaken VW occurs, leading them to a nearly 20-page car chase. Eventually, they get away, and the actual crooks in their van are captured. The turtles then end up falling asleep in April's living room, and we cut to see that Splinter has been discovered and taken away by shadowy TCRI technicians. The technicians end up being robot suits for weird aliens called Utrams. a week later the turtles are out on patrol and end up fighting remnants of the foot clan who are looking for revenge for the death of shredder they see a building labeled tcri and remember that as the company that made the canister that mutated them they sneak into the building find splinter in a containment tube of some sort fight a small army of robots and eventually fall into something called a translocation device which makes them disappear into space so there's not a lot to talk about in these, Dwayne, partly no. because sixteen-page car chase yes. in book
0: three. Yes, there is. It just keeps <laughs> literally, going. Like,
1: literally, you know, it is. This is the French Connection of comic books, right? There is. I've never seen anything like this since or before. You and, and Eastman even talks. He's like, you know, there really weren't many car chases in comic books, and so we decided we were going to do a car chase, and they super did a car chase there's no way around it so uh, i was entertaining uh we see a little bit more of the foot clan we bring back in tcri i don't know there's a lot to talk about here on my side was there what what really interested you about these if anything
0: i mean it's mistaken identity Van form here because basically these other robbers—it's it, my cousin Vinny in a comic book featuring the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because it is the exact same VW. It really van. is, isn't it? Yes, it is because it's the same van, and like this mm-hmm. random police officer is like sees April and the and April's van and the turtles, and is like that's the one that just robbed a bank. We're gonna go after him. They're like, we can't be caught, so we just start running. So they assume they're guilty, and more and more police keep coming. They drive through a park, all sorts of craziness. And somehow, matter-of-factly, they just end up pulling up right beside the other VW band that has the actual bank robbers in it. And then they sort of just kind of duck into an alley, and the, the actual bank robbers get 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 apprehended it is it is kind of crazy but but at the same time it's it, it, it feels comic book like like it, it's fine it, it's i'm not reading too much into it i'm not i'm not expecting more i guess at the same time
1: yeah it's it's kind of insane the whole thing is a little bit nuts but I wonder if both of those VWs had pause attraction, by the way. Would would they have there been able go. to get away with it? There that's, you go. That's the there only real question that I need to find out. The
0: other thing is, is when we get into book four, TCRI, you have these, like, robot things with these, like, brain-looking things sitting in the center. And I'm like, yes. oh, my God, is this, like, Krang, like the arch-villain Krang that they had from way back In the comic, like in the animated series, I remember this brain called Krang that was in this like body thing that it looks like basically a brain with like these two like little arm things. And these robots that are in TCRI look exactly like it. They're these robot things with this like brain looking thing with little, with little nub arms. And I'm like, this is potentially where that where that character ended up coming from. And they're not, like, bad guys. We We come to find out eventually that they're not necessarily bad guys. They're marooned aliens. But at the same time, like, you don't know who these are. They've got Splinter in this, like, stasis tube. And so you think that they're bad, and that's what the turtles think as well. And it leads to a big fight and ultimately ends up getting them translocated into into space by the time the issue ends.
1: Yes. Yeah I, I believe that Krang is an Utrom, but Umtroms are not all Krangs or whatever. Like sure. he is a he is sure. actually an evil warlord of yes. that species. So the ones that, that we sense. met and the ones that we saw are the the good ones and then Krang is a uh Krang's a bad apple of that yeah. of that particular group. that makes uh, sense back to haunt them I I think that's what's going on but he is he definitely does look exactly the same so um, yeah these these were kind of a setup type of thing but the idea was that they allowed them to do just some fun things they were literally doing what they wanted to do hey I want to do a car chase hey I want to I want to send the turtles into space and that's kind of the bridges they're using to do these things which brings us to go ahead
0: one more note, one other character that were actually introduced during these two books is Casey Jones shows up. He's in the rooftop on in issue four that they are fighting before noticing the TCRI building. And so we actually see him. He's got the mask on. He's got the hockey stick doing all this sort of thing as well. So we... We're slowly building these characters that we ended up seeing all throughout the the IP going forward.
1: Well, and Casey Jones, actually, in between book three and book four, you have the Raphael one-shot. And the Raphael one-shot is Raphael going off, ending up having an adventure with Casey Jones, the The gist of which is that, that Casey's even crazier than he is. So Raphael yeah. gets to be like, the, the one who isn't killing everybody, and then both of them learn a lesson and kind of become friends a little bit. So Casey Jones debuted in the Raphael One-Shot between three and four, and so that's why he's still kind of hanging around and we see him in four a little bit. Uh, he'll be back, obviously. Gotcha. Yeah, and then, uh, but yeah, so they are. They're slowly getting more and more of these characters and and kind of getting things extended out. So, but now, Dwayne, They've disappeared yes. in these last three issues, 5, 6, and 7. We're actually heading directly into space opera. Get, us, get the ability to see Eastman and Laird's love of all things Star Wars and, and science fiction and everything else. Issue 5 starts out with a fight yet again, as the transported turtles somehow end up in a fight with a bunch of soldiers. They team up with a strange little robot called the Fugitoid. He helps them hide and he lets them know that they're in Peblac, a city on a planet called Dehunib. fugitoid actually ends up being the brain of a scientist who's been trapped in a robot, and he explains what a translocation device is to them and why they're so dangerous. They then head to a cantina-esque bar and are attacked by armed triceratons, not triceratops, by the way, this is a race of, of triceratop-type animals called triceratons, um, who then end up kidnapping the fugitoid. The Turtles manage to sneak aboard the ship that the the Triceratons are using to return to their asteroid city, but are captured after nearly running out of air as the ship docks. Our boys then end up being used to fight as gladiators in a plot by the Triceratons to force Fugitoid to help them build a translocation device. But they end up saving the day by defeating their foes in the arena and then taking the Triceraton leader hostage. Eventually though, As they're trying to get away, they are overwhelmed by numbers and are just about to be killed when a blinding light whisks them away again. The Ultrams have brought the Turtles and Fugitoid back to Earth, and after an extended dinosaur versus alien versus robot versus turtle battle, the story ends with the Turtles victorious and Splinter safe. The Ultrams leave the Earth and in the process transport the Turtles and Splinter to safety in April's bathtub. Ba-dum-pum. Yes. There you go.
0: That is, that it that was quite the whirlwind of books. I have to say, there is there there's not much time to like catch your breath. You you talked about the Eastman and Laird liking action. There was a lot of action throughout all of this stuff. There there was yes. story kind of inner intermixed intermixed in here. One of the coolest two page panels, by the way, is seeing this like the asteroid ship docking at this even larger asteroid city thing that the Triceratons were like their home world is this like giant asteroid super city thing. It's like, it reminds me of like Asgard with a, with a dome on top of it basically. And, and like it, it was, it was, it was something there is there the level of detail in these black and white books is actually quite something. And, and there is so much to take in, in each and every one of the panels. And then you get to these giant two page spreads and it and it's just even
1: more. Yep. Yeah. The, as they're moving on, they're getting more and more confident in their abilities. They're starting to try more things. You know, these really, we're going to talk a little bit about the fact there's a flood of black and white books that come out sort of following on these. But what is sometimes missed is the fact that the Turtles really shouldn't be lumped in with those books because there is an amazing amount of of energy and, and sort of skill in these comics. You know, there's a reason they ended up being the basis for this massive franchise. There's a lot of ideas in there and a lot of fun. And... Even as they're doing all the action, I think what was interesting to me is that, you know, as a, as a 15 year old, when these came out, I thought they were the coolest thing, you know, and 15 year olds are not known for thinking things are cool, but it was, they were a little bit edgy. They were kind of like, you know, one of those bands that nobody else knows about that you get to, to enjoy. That was for comic book fans. What the, what the turtles were in the early 80s because there weren't that many people who really were reading these kind of comic books and then they just kept trying new stuff so it was always it was always fresh the the turtles were an interesting experiment and what i loved about these they knew exactly who were they were writing for so they were writing for fans of jack kirby and frank miller action a little bit of a darker humor a little bit of a darker sort of outlook on heroism and the like you know these guys were not afraid to chop off a few limbs here and there that sort of thing it was there's a lot of violence like they are very Ah. serious characters right um and yet they did as they're moving along they have a lighter touch and i think it's just because they're enjoying the characters and the like and it's their natural sort of they're not playing to what they think anybody else wants. They're just making what they want and it turns out it was it was pretty successful for them. So yeah, but it's they're fun books uh, and then at the end of like every one of these, they're like, maybe we'll get another series of books, maybe not, but everybody's happy and the story's done now and so good. And then you know it's it's kind of nice that they were they were always sort of planning for... The Axe, uh, and then it never came. And we're just about at the point now, seven issues in, they still didn't have, you know, the big the big uh, toy contracts and everything else. So they were just making money off comics now. And as we're going to see in this last book we take a look at, uh, there are some bad things coming down the pike that are going to start causing them some trouble. So there you go. But so these are seven books that... What did you think of these as a a group?
0: I don't know what I was expecting from a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic book, but these were immensely satisfying books for the most part. They went directions I did not expect. It definitely felt like they were geared towards a older audience than I would have expected, again, based on my knowledge of them and, and how they end up becoming... Uh, down the road in in other media but i can see why this was successful the this is really good storytelling there's some really cool art interesting characters and the idea of let's just do something because we want to do it and have some fun with it and and we'll see what happens and and by and large i i There's nothing about these books that I'm like, this really didn't work for me.
1: Mm -hmm. And even the things that didn't necessarily work, it never felt like someone was pandering to you by by giving you what they thought you wanted. They're just, here's some crazy stuff we want to tell stories with. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. And for the most part, it works. I, I do think it's interesting looking at these that this property somehow was turned into a successful children's show and a toy line because really it is, it is not necessarily intuitive to see that that would work. You know, Mark Friedman kind of did some magic taking this property and then turning it into, to let the toy companies and the animation studios see how this could be a kid's show and a kid's toy and you know when when i was again you know with my i would have been 15 when these came out by the time the tv show came out i was 18 and i went from thinking that turtles were super cool to the turtles have sold out to make crappy children's television shows and i will never read them again that was my evolution within three years on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles.
0: The exact opposite for me. I went from completely oblivious to knowing they existed to, "Hey, this is the coolest thing! I yeah. I wanted because I was, you know, probably about ten years younger than you at that at that point."
1: Yep. Yeah. So for me, it's it's really weird. I did not read any of the turtle stuff. Uh, after probably the late 80s i have not watched most of the animated shows or anything like that the teenage mutant ninja turtles to me still are the eastman laird books of the mid 80s and so yeah so it's going to be weird for me also going into the movie next week because i have not watched all of i've watched i think the first uh the first uh the first turtles movie from like 90 or 90 or 91 is the only one I watched. So yeah. Anyway. The fir-
0: yeah. The first, the first teenage mutant Ninja turtles movie came out in 1990 and then secret of the ooze. The second movie came out in 91 and then the third movie came out in 93. The last yes. movie we had was teenage mutant Ninja turtles out of the shadows, which was 2016 So it's been seven years since we had a a Turtles film, yeah. Is
1: that the one that starred uh, the Arrow star as Casey Jones? I think it might be, like a live action one, right? But anyway, um, crazy stuff. So I really enjoyed these books, but it is interesting to look at them through that lens of a particular time. Uh, They will always, for me, be quintessentially a mid eighties sort of, uh, this is, you know, some, some people I remember in college who loved REM until they got popular. And then they were like, ah, REM's dead to me. This, this is my REM pretty much. So there you go.
0: So, so we looked at that and then you said, let's look at one more book. And it is adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters from 1986 and all i could say is i think my head sort of exploded while we while i was looking at this book
1: yes so we had options here by the way so this is probably the the most well known of the knockoffs but what happened is immediately after turtles came out and it was you know wildly successful made a bunch of money was produced on a shoestring using cheap printing, printing methods, which were accessible to almost anybody. If for 1500 bucks, you could print a comic book and get it out there and maybe have it sell thousands of copies and make you a bunch of money. Well, why wouldn't people? And so we went from like 20 independent publishers in 1984 to something like 150 or 160 in 1987. It just mushroomed. Right. So a lot of them specifically sort of took a, we're going to parody the parody approach. So this one's adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters, which went for nine issues. There's, there was also aristocratic extraterrestrial time traveling thieves, cold-blooded chameleon commandos, um, geriatric gangrene jiu jitsu gerbils. <laughs> uh, what else? Hamster vice was different, but similar. Mildly microwaved prepubescent kung fu gophers. Uh, naive interdimensional commando koalas. And preteen dirty gene kung fu kangaroos. Oh my
0: goodness.
1: Almost all of which came out in like 1985, 86, 87. They just pounded the market with these knockoffs that nonetheless sold massively the book we read this week went for 9 issues plus some 3d spin-offs and the like the series over a couple years is believed to have sold over 500,000 copies total do you know how few like marvel comic books sell say 50,000 comics per or copies per issue these days i'm betting get, there's a good a chance moon it. knight isn't right now the The publication threshold for most modern books is about ten to fifteen thousand. Where if it falls under that, it's not feasible to publish it. And these books were were selling thousands and thousands of copies. And what happened was nobody wanted to miss out on the next turtles because it had gone to over like a 100, 150 bucks, and it was a dollar fifty cover price. So. A lot of people were like, well, I can buy an awful lot of crap. And if just one of them turns into the next Turtles, hey, I'm rich, right? Problem is none of them turned into the next Turtles. Because the reason why the Turtles were the Turtles is they had a 3,000 print run first edition and nobody saw it coming. (music) So this then is the environment that Don Chin and Chris Persanovich stepped into in 1986 when they came out with their parody book called adolescent radioactive ah not an easy one to say adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters number one that's obviously something that is playing on and, and derivative of the turtles but it also like a lot of these did have completely its own sort of vibe it was very sort of irreverent it broke the fourth wall quite regularly they did a lot of stuff that was a lot more um they did a number of things that were sort of more uh, overtly absurd where the turtles were taking a more grounded approach to anthropomorphic uh, mutant animals this hamster's book really just kind of reveled in the absurdity and for some people, that's a big part of its attraction. Even now, I was never as much into sort of that sort of thing. So these, I will admit, were not necessarily as much on uh, my cup of tea. This book was a, a bit of a roller coaster, I suspect. Um, I don't know <laughs> if, if this was really what you were, uh, were, were figuring we'd be looking at this week. But it's indicative, really, of some of the books that were coming out at that time. You know, these were young guys. They were starting out kind of finding a way into the market that maybe would have been difficult otherwise, because this book was actually published by Eclipse, which is a comic company that was kind of a mid-tier publisher. It wasn't just that, you know, it was a Mirage studio like the one that the Turtles used. Uh, They actually had a distributor that was a, a pretty decent comic distributor, a larger one. As we noted before, sold a lot of copies of this book. There are some things there, though, that I think would give a person some pause. The story is, were, were, you, were you confident you knew what was going on at all parts of the story? No, the
0: the story seemed a little scattershot. It was, there There was a lot of, like, re, pop, I would I assume pop culture references, lots of uh, things just sort of, I don't know if they were, like, directed at me as a reader of the comic or what, but it was just sort of like everything sort of felt like it had a wink
1: and a nod to it. Yep. It was very irreverent. And more than that, you know, it's it sort of covers a lot of ground in this first issue with a page left yeah. over, as we'll discover. So, you know, they start out as these sort of young test hamsters. They're launched into space. I don't really know what they were going to space for, but somehow they end up going to this thing. Persanovich's this... art is is sort of almost Mobius kind of Euro style, and I'm not really sure what that thing they were aimed at was.
0: No, it looks like a giant ball flame asteroid looking comet yeah. thing. So we're not entirely sure, but they end up inside of it somehow. And are there for a while until they decide yeah. oh, we should blow up the ship and that's yeah. that's what's going
1: to happen. Like some sort of organic asteroid almost. But they yeah. they uh, end up blowing it up, uh, self-destructing. They self-destruct themselves back to Tibet, fall in the snow. They're found by this old uh, wizened monk who takes them back to his monastery and trains them in the martial arts. This, of course, is another one of those things that's sort of calls back to the turtles because just like Daredevil's origin story is recounted in the turtles you've got kind of an iron fist from marvel type of uh of relationship to the story the the hamsters there then things get a little bit weird they are sent away <laughs> from the monastery because their master needs to get a package to his brother or cousin in San Francisco and doesn't want to pay the postage so he just launches his apprentices out into the snow. Um, they end up sort of finding and mugging a drug dealer who's out in the snow. So they call him the Abominable Snowman. They defeat him. They take his car. They take his drugs. They take his money. Eventually they end up on a plane and the plane is hijacked. And then they kind of save the day. There's a lot going on in this comic book uh and yeah. not all of it makes a whole lot of sense i will say no it's, it's a little
0: crude too like yep. like the humor is very crude there's you know the half naked pictures of women you know jokes jokes like that they're making you know doing weird acronyms for the hijacking group and everything like this it was just I mean, it felt like anywhere they could have of a, Anywhere they could have attempted to put a joke, they attempted to put a joke. Oh. In.
1: Yep. And the eighties direct market was not always the most. Uh, there were a lot of a lot of books that had highly questionable "quote unquote" mature com, uh, content in some of these books and everything. This was rele- rather mild by those standards, to be quite frank. So um, really, oh yeah,
0: <laughs> that 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 speaks to is, holy cow!
1: Is, what, that could
0: have been. What that was like at the time.
1: This is family friendly fare compared to some of the stuff that was going on back in the day. So, but, uh, but yeah, it was, and then it ends and there's one page left over and they actually put in a page of the, the artist and the writer just talking about how they need to put in another page because they evidently miscounted how many they needed. So.
0: Yes, arguing about whose fault it was, and and they're like the the final panel is basically like I guess we're just gonna have to BS our way through it, which obviously by the time we're at the last panel, they've successfully done that.
1: Yep. And so, you know this this lasted nine issues, had a pretty good run. It obviously is not Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? Especially here with the first issue. Now, you know it. They had some time, obviously, as his younger creators. Uh, they get some time to get things sorted out later, but it is amazing how many of these books came out like this. And I think that while it it actually is one of the more sort of coherent of the black and white ones, because um, there were some really weird books that came out that were in this sort of thing. It still shows that you know Eastman and Laird had a very a very well-developed sense of what kind of story they wanted to tell both of them had been to art school i think when you look at the care they took with some of the art and things like that uh, it was obvious that they kind of knew what they wanted to do now personavich's art actually when you look at it within the euro style of like mobius and stuff like that it it actually does look pretty good in some ways but the problem is that it is that style of art can be confusing enough. Even reading like Blueberry and stuff like that back in the day, or some of the Mobius stuff, was was sometimes a little confusing. When it gets a little muddied and it's in black and white, it was really sort of hard to tell what was going on sometimes. So
0: yeah, I I, I could see
1: that. But so this was this was kind of the state of. What happened after Turtles? And we had a bunch of these books come out, and they flooded the market. And some of them were really good quality, some of them were not so good quality. But in any case, taken as an aggregate, they just overwhelmed sort of the investor and collector market and crashed it. And so you can't blame anybody in particular. You can't just, you know, yell at Cell. You can't just yell at... Uh, you know the the hamsters or or whoever, but the effect in total of this explosion of black and white books was that we kind of we kind of just overwhelmed the market and the whole thing contracted. So they got their nine issues, which was pretty good for that time, and then probably by the time that that ninth issue came out, we'd have been experiencing that contraction.
0: I, I will say that. I, I will say this: one of the things on the on the front page, on the cover page, uh, inside the book, they do have a special thanks, and at, in that first issue, they thanked their mom and their dad, but they also thanked Frank Miller, Jack Kirby, uh, Eastman and Laird. Yep. So, like, I mean, they 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 knew what they were doing, and and they were even thanking the you know the the people that helped inspire. This to to even come to fruition.
1: Yep, absolutely. No, that's. There's no doubt that uh, they're not trying to hide where their where their inspiration comes from here. You know, it's uh, it's it is it is obvious and it is it is loving that uh, a lot of these people really did come into it and and got that opportunity because they'd never imagined they could do a comic book until Eastman and Laird sort of showed the way and like hey heck let's give it a try so so there you go Dwayne that's our that's our before and during and after the Turtles books a little bit of a little bit of Frank Miller at the start some hamsters at the end and a whole lot of Eastman and Laird in the middle so
0: all right Jumping into correspondence for this week, we had a tweet from Mo while you were on vacation, Dan. He was talking about the price of Moon Knight number 25. He said, hope to hear your thoughts on Moon Knight 25 costing $9.99. I was shocked by the cover price. Man, I hope that page count is was high. I actually went and picked up my issue this last week. And it is. It, it is like 92 pages is what I was seeing online. You were saying that it looks like it's about 70 or so pages uh, when it comes to like the main story. One of the things that I really liked about this is it looks like a book. Like when I picked it up, it looks like it's an actual like big book. This doesn't feel like your floppy uh, comic book like that you normally would get every month. That's about 24, 26 you know, 28 pages, that sort of thing. The thing I liked most about it is there is a seven-page reprint of A Long Way to Dawn, which was that story that we read way back in the phases of the Moon Knight days. That I think was in Hulk number twenty from way back in nineteen eighty. It was right. It was kind of that interstitial story between the ending of one story arc and the start of another, where Marlene is is being operated on and she wasn't sure if she was going to make it through the night and he's out just sort of kind of dealing with street level crime going on while thinking about all the you know how marlene is on death's door and it was something because i read that in the digital pages back when we read those books and then seeing it actual on a physical printed page this is, a, mm-hmm. this is a Doug Mensch, Bill Sienkiewicz story. And I was I I think I'm going to cherish this book if for no other reason than those seven pages. Because that was a really cool story. And the fact that I have a physical copy of that now is really exciting to me.
1: So as to me, I I always get angry when they charge additional money for books that are in the regular run. I'm like, look, I signed up for buying your comic book it's 4 bucks a month or 5 bucks a month. That's what I said I'd pay. Why are you now grifting me for 10 bucks on a book that we'd agreed I would be willing to pay 4 bucks for? However, to the extent that it can be, I'm satisfied because it's got you know a lot of story, a lot of art. It's a really nice book. They did a good job on it. Uh, and you know, we're only getting so much Jed McKay. So if they really wanted to just make all four or five issues, he's still going to do 90 pages each and charge me 10 bucks for it. I'd be fine with that.
0: Yeah. You
1: do whatever you need to do. So, um, and then the story was satisfying. I think it's, it's been fun to watch how this is working and, you know, to see the, the, to see the evolution of eight ball, eight balls, heroic arc is the, uh, is the main thing that we're all interested in now we're invested in eight ball if Je- if jed mckay accomplishes that he will have uh he will have shown himself to be one of the great writers of all time so
0: all right it's pretty obvious where we're going next week with the show but dan tell us what are what are we what are we going to be talking about on next week's show
1: hey hey we've experienced what the teenage mutant ninja turtles were like back in the grim and gritty days of 1984. So now it's time to see what they're up to in 2023. Dwayne and I will therefore be heading out to the movies again, taking in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. So join us next week. See what we thought, uh, how this compares to those early Eastman-Laird comic books, and uh, just in general what we thought of the movie. I'm
0: very much looking forward to that. And with that, that is going to wrap it up for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show as well as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If, you're, if you read the comics this week after we got the reading list out to you late or you go and see Mutant Mayhem, we'd love to get your thoughts and we could share them on the show. You can send those to us via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com, or you can reach out to us via social media. I don't want to call it X, but it is now X, formerly Twitter. We are there at comics overtime as well. Dan, it was great having you back. I've missed getting together with you and talking comics. Really enjoyed seeing the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and what they were like in those first comics. And I'm very much looking forward to getting together and talking to you next week about the movie.
1: All right. And, and as we're, as we're heading out, I want to also thank you, the you and the two co-hosts from the last couple of weeks. Podcasts have been fun to listen to, and it was really nice to, uh, just, you know, get to listen in. But, uh,
0: Yes, big thanks to Luke and Ben for joining us the last two weeks. Until next week, take care, everybody.
1: See you later.